The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. Every Tuesday, we have the Hard Shoulders Guide to the Galaxy, where we try to answer some of the important questions like what is the Milky Way or how big are black holes? And we're getting into some of the really big existential questions like what is it that is going to snuff us all out of atomic and subatomic existence at some point in the not too distant uh, future? So we are continuing on the series. We have, of course, Dr. Coleman Gallagher, who is a planetary geomorphologist with the UCD School of Geography. We are talking dark matter and the big rip. That's right. We talked about dark matter last week. And uh, I think today, if we want to talk about the big rip, we've got to talk about this thing called dark energy, which is different from dark matter. Uh, again, the, the word dark isn't really very appropriate um, in that it's uh, it, like any form of energy. It's invisible, really. So uh, dark really means invisible uh, in this case. It's a, it's a form of matter that uh, has got a, a long kind of, her- I should say it's a form of energy that's got a long uh, heritage starting back in about 1912 um, when a, a female astronomer called Henrietta Leavitt in the States um, was doing some observations of variable stars in a small satellite galaxy of the Milky Way. Um, she didn't know the distance to this galaxy, but she knew it, to, that it was a set distance and that all of these stars were the same distance from the Earth in that respect. Uh, and she was measuring how long they took to pulsate in brightness. And uh, given that they were the same distance, um, she knew, therefore, that stars that appeared brighter or dimmer on Earth were actually brighter or dimmer, that the, the brightness or dimness wasn't just a, a function of distance. Um, and that actual difference in brightness is called luminosity. And she worked out this beautiful relationship between pulsation period and luminosity. Um, and, and that was really quite important because it hadn't been done before. She wasn't able to determine distance, though, and that, that happened a few years later with the work of a Danish astronomer called Hertzsprung. And uh, by looking at closer stars that had the same kind of uh, pulsation activity, he was able to work out the uh, luminosity, pulsation, and distance uh, relationships and for the first time, that gave rise to a cosmic yardstick. It was possible to measure very large distances across the universe because these uh, uh, variable stars called Cepheid variables are actually visible over uh, certainly tens of millions, if not several hundred million and, and light years. And you can infer distance by measuring luminosity. Simply by measuring the pulsation period, which gives you luminosity. And just as if you had a a 60-watt light bulb, and it was close to you, it would appear bright. If you had a 60-watt light bulb with the same luminosity, but it was further away, it would look dimmer. But you could work out that it was a 60-watt light bulb uh, or or the distance, whichever way you wanted to look at it. Um, and so this is what the, the two astronomers were, were able to do. And in fact, uh, in 1929, the third astronomer comes in, and he was Edwin Hubble, uh, working in the States with the largest telescope on Earth at the time. And he discovered a Cepheid variable in what was known as the Andromeda Nebula. We know it today as the Andromeda Spiral Galaxy. It's a completely different galaxy, very similar to the Milky Way in shape and in mass and so on. But he spotted this Cepheid variable there. And using Levitt's and Hertzsprung's principles, he was able to determine that this was an independent galaxy that he thought was about one to one and a half million light years away. We now know it's 2.5 million light years away. And he measured about 23 others that were even further away. And he was able to use these things as a cosmic yardstick. The 
the the final part of this initial kind of story comes when uh, another astronomer with a fantastic name, Vesto Slipher, uh, determined that uh, the further away an object is, the and the the faster it's receding from the Earth, um, that the more red its light should become. It's it's slightly more complicated than that in that the, the spectrum of the light has got these dark absorption lines across it and they should be also shifted towards the red end of the spectrum. But actually the light is, is redder anyway. And is that almost like a sort of a Doppler effect? That is a Doppler effect, absolutely, yeah. So that the frequency of the light um, and the wavelength of the light become longer um, and that looks redder uh, to, to, to uh, any other object in relation to it. And... Uh, in principle, he worked out that the further away these two objects are, the greater the redshift should be between them if they're moving apart. Um, Hubble kind of plugged this idea in, and by looking at the Cepheid relationship that gave him distance and the redshift relationship that gave him recessional velocity, he found out that the further away an object is, a galaxy is from the Earth or from the Milky Way, the more quickly it's receding. And that looked like a, a huge recession from the Milky Way. But actually, he knew that the, the, the Milky Way wasn't the center of the universe. What actually he had found was... Oh, that, it was a generalized expansion. Absolutely, that all galaxies, just about all galaxies, uh, if you go outside the local group, for example, if you go beyond Andromeda, actually Andromeda is approaching the Milky Way and will collide with it. But anything further than that, really, everything is expanding in space. And is that a legacy of inertia from the Big Bang? Uh, it. It's not, actually. Um, after the Big Bang, um, about an infinite, infinitesimally small time period after the Big Bang, about 10 to the minus 32 of a second after the Big Bang, there was this inflationary period um, uh, that actually ended at that time. It, 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 it was a period in which the, the, the young universe expanded from something smaller, much, much smaller than the size of an atom or even an electron, to something that maybe was the size of a of a marble, and thereafter it it expanded, um, but actually as it was expanding um, and matter was becoming more and more rarefied, um, the matter actually was beginning to exert a gravitational pull on the expansion of the universe, causing it uh, um, to actually over time come back on itself in, in a kind of a, a recession of that expansion. What actually was found, though, is that the uh, expansion of space over the past 5 billion years or so, the universe is about 13.7 billion years old, but that the uh, expansion of space has picked up and has accelerated. So actually, to answer your question, if it was just a kind of an after effect of the Big Bang, things would be coming back to a smaller and smaller point in a kind of a big crunch. But as things are going, the expansion has re-accelerated. I have a feeling this may be where dark energy comes in. Yeah, so the question is, what would cause the universe to start uh, accelerating in terms of its volume? Um, the The most obvious idea is that after this initial phase of, uh, of what's called inflation, that's the, the phase after the Big Bang, which lasted a, a very, very tiny time period, but in which the universe uh, went through a series of, of doublings, about a hundred of these doublings, so that's like two to the power of 100 times the volume, um, that in fact the, that it's possible that this period of, of inflation was reestablished. That's the kind of default idea. But in fact, that doesn't work. It, it's, uh, the, 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 the characteristics of it just don't 
agree with what's observed. So it's something different. It's a different form of dark energy. And that's where the conundrums lie now. Um, but luckily enough, there is some good uh, data to suggest what this dark energy might be. And that is? Well, <laughs> the uh, if we go back into the mid-20th century uh, with the, uh, the work of Hubble, who had discovered the expanding universe, uh, and we set alongside him, uh, Albert Einstein, uh, Einstein's view was that the universe should be static, that it, it should be unchanging. Um, but he accepted completely Hubble's observations, and so therefore he realized that actually he was wrong, and that to make his theory of relativity work, he had to introduce this thing called a cosmological constant. Um, his, his theories of relativity actually suggested that the universe could expand or could contract, and uh, so he had to uh, put in a cosmological constant that was consistent with expansion. Um, and the possibility is that the new form of energy is some kind of cosmological constant and that in fact uh, Einstein was wrong to introduce it and he thought he called it his greatest blunder in that he had introduced it to overcome this problem this this divergence between his static universe and Hubble's expanding universe but actually that it was probably correct in the long term um and that what that it, it that it it, it it was another way of expressing some form of reverse gravity? Or is, it, it, is is a, it, is? it is a repulsive form of gravity, absolutely. In fact, um, th that is one way that cosmological constant of Einstein could be interpreted. It's, it's quite complicated in that it, it, it requires an understanding of pressure, which is something that most people don't know about in terms of Einstein's theories, his field theories. But if there is a negative pressure this cosmological constant actually becomes self-repulsive. It produces a repulsive type of gravity that acts outwards rather than inwards. And it's possible that the uh, expansion of the universe is due to this cosmological constant. One of the, the basic ideas in this is that as the matter density decreases, um, the uh, let's say at a set rate, uh, if the volume of space increases by two, the matter density will halve. In fact, the energy density will uh, decrease at a smaller volume. So the matter density and the energy density start to diverge. Which would suggest an acceleration Abs of the, the repulsive force. Exactly, that's right. Almost passively, um, simply because they diverge, at, at the, they, they separate that the, the matter density decreases more quickly than the energy density. So does that mean that all of the matter ends up scattered to the winds and we no longer exist? It absolutely does. That's oh, that's good. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful news. It, it leads to this uh, to this concept that the as the matter density decreases, that the the universe becomes uh, colder and colder. That the remember that heat is really a um, a proxy for the um, the density of matter and the amount that matter kind of jiggles. But if, if uh, per volume of space, per cubic meter of space, there's less and less matter, it means that even if that matter is jiggling a great deal, it's producing very little heat. So that ultimately the universe goes into this thing called a heat death and it get, just gets colder and colder. Um, if it keeps going, well, we get into this opposite of the big crunch. Actually, in, in uh, a certain amount of time, it's estimated something like 10 to the 22 years. That's a one followed by 22 zeros 
Remember, at the moment, we're only at uh, a one followed by about nine zeros. <laughs> You're talking just a vast amount more. Um, that the uh, the fabric of space-time actually rips apart in this thing called the Big Rip. And that is a, is a frightening kind of concept. It's, it's, a, it's really the end of the universe as we know it. Uh, that isn't kind of accepted easily by, by many people. So, for example, Roger Penrose, who got the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago for his work in terms of black holes that he did in the mid-1960s along with Stephen Hawking, um, suggests that if the matter density gets to an absolute minimum, and in fact that there's no matter left, that there's only radiation left in the universe, photons of light, photons of, of energy, that in fact because these photons travel um, at the speed of light and therefore experience no time, so a photon of, of light, that, as, we, as we see it, experiences no time, and therefore it's everywhere at once in the universe. It's a very hard concept to get your head around, but a photon of light is everywhere at once because it experiences no time. And so therefore this enormous universe with no matter in it, only radiation, is essentially zero size to these photons. So despite the fact that for matter, which has now disappeared, it was endlessly enormous, to a photon... It's endlessly tiny, and we're back to square one. We're back to a tiny point in space-time, which can then regrow again. Okay, so our options are we freeze to death, scatter to the four winds, and space-time tears itself apart and no longer exists, yeah. or we shrink back to a, sort of a quantum level where we are all photonic. That's right. Even that's Sorry, that is exactly right, that all there is left is energy of photons. The important point of all of this is that all of the, the data tells us a bit about the future, but it tells us that from the past, we started at a distinct point. In other words, the future might be very long, but the past is finite. And the most important bit, none of this is happening anytime soon. We don't have to worry about uh, giving up on paying the mortgage or any of that kind of stuff. Unfortunately not, and we've got more immediate things to worry about. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.